Good morning, everyone. Okay, so the first one is Deuteronomy 11, 13 to 16. So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, that I will sell, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and olive oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and I will eat, and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful, or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Our second reading is John 14, 15 to 21. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives in you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Altia. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, it's good to be here. If you're new or visiting, welcome. My name's Evan, and my wife Sandy and I have the honor, really, of leading this church. And today we finish this series. So we finish this series that we've called, I think there it is, Shema, Hearing God's Voice. And the word Shema is Hebrew, really old word that uh, comes from the first books of the Bible, and it means to hear, but not just to hear noise, but to respond, to actually respond in a way that says, hey, I'm listening to you and I love you. So um, here's the prayer it comes from. You guys remember. So we're ending with this prayer just like we started this series. Hear, O Israel. Can we say this together? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And there you have it. This here is the primary confession of the Jewish faith, which was Jesus' faith. Jesus fulfilled the Jewish faith in his person, and then he expanded it to include every ethnicity, tribe, and tongue that would call upon Jesus, the embodiment of the creator. And so this was his prayer, this is our prayer. It means to hear in a way that you're digesting what they're saying and then your life is responding in an act of honor and love. And so according to the Shema, according to this prayer, hearing is a synonym for responding rightly. Do you have that next slide, slide five? According to the Shema, hearing is a synonym for responding rightly. This is the heart of what we're talking about. This is who we wanna be as a church. As God's people respond rightly to what he says, he's loved and we flourish. Okay, so for the past two months, we've explored how this plays out as a community following Jesus. We've talked about how to practically hear God's voice. How do you hear his voice? In order to respond, you have to hear him. And we talked about that. So you can go back in the series. We, we talked about what it means that the spirit is inside of us. David Wade broke that down. What does it mean that his spirit is inside of us? And then how do we hear his voice through practices like Sabbath, being still? How to hear in the secret place. And then Drew Enos, one of our church planners, uh, over July, he preached how to hear God's voice despite p 
pain caused by humans. Uh, and that was uh, powerful for us. And then how, how we use our voices, we talked about that. Because God is a speaking God who creates us in his image. We're speaking people and we can speak realities into the world with our words. And so may they be good ones. And then last week, Pete Hughes, if how many of you are here for Pete Hughes, uh, powerful sermon all about staying hungry for revival and longing to hear God's voice, taking control of our own hearts to bring salvation through repentance. And now today we're going to wrap it up. I want to take us back to the beginning of Israel's story where the great Shema comes from. We're going to go back to the context. And by the way, next week we start a new series about why we do church and it's, gonna, it's a short one, three, three or four weeks, and it's going to build up to a really exciting announcement that our church is birthing. So uh, stick around for the next four weeks. Pay attention. There's exciting things to come in the life of our church and family of churches. So uh, that's, this is all response to the God who speaks. And so we're going back to the beginning of this story of God's people, Exodus. If you know the Exodus story... Prince of Egypt, Ten Commandments. I'm the Ten Commandments generation, Charlton Heston. Um, so I'm a big fan. Uh, just, just watching him speak and uh, walk makes me, makes me feel more confident about myself. He's very... So God's people, Israel, have just been delivered from slavery. You know the story. And before they get to the promised land, all Israel's gathered uh, around Moses, around a mountain, while Moses is explaining how this, how this new society is going to work. Now God's in charge of a nation. What is that? That's, what, that's never happened. And so here's how it's going to work. And it's going to work through this word, this word called covenant. Uh, can you say that word just so we stay awake today? I know it's early. Can we say covenant? Good, good, covenant. It's a little gloomy outside. Let's brighten it up in here. It feels brighter in here. I don't know if it's a recessed lighting there, but, um, but it's catching my eye, everything, these Christmas lights or whatever. But uh, so this is, this is God and Israel, covenant. Here's what's happening. God and Israel get married. Have you thought of the Exodus story like that before? This is God and Israel creating a covenant of relationship. So in prepping for this teaching, Matt Persley, our executive pastor, he made a great point. Difference between a contract and a covenant. A contract says, that's yours, that's mine. All right? Let's make it clear. That's yours, that's mine. A covenant says, I'm yours and you're mine. That's the difference between a contract and a covenant. And as, as Americans, we know contracts. We're a litigation culture. Contracts are everywhere. Make sure that that's that and yours is yours. But a covenant, it, it's an immersion into the other person, a full trust and commitment of your person and a reception of their person. And that's what's happening in Exodus. That's what's happening to start off the story of God's people. The story of God delivering Israel from slavery all the way to a burning mountain a mountain on fire where God presents the Torah, the Bible. God actually presents the scriptures to his people. Uh, this is the story of God the rescuer marrying Israel the rescued bride. And, and this was always the intent from the beginning. You guys, if, if you've read the Bible much, you know that the first page of the Bible, there's first two pages, there are multiple marriages happening, aren't there? There's Adam and Eve, but then there's also heaven and earth coming together, and there's God and people. God wants to live with this. God's like, I'm your creator, and you're my creation. Let's do this together. And the Bible ends that way, too. The Bible ends. It literally says, New Jerusalem, the society of God being lowered from heaven to earth as a bride. And, and marriage language is explicit. 
there. This was always the intent. I'm not just reading a theme into the Bible. Christians aren't just doing that when we talk about this. It's, it's meant to be seen this way. And so um, here in the Exodus story, the story of Israel's birth as a nation, it's almost as if God becomes the groom and Israel's the bride and the Torah, the scriptures, are the ring that embody the covenant that they wear. They literally wear pieces of the Torah on their heads, it says. Uh, so, so it's beautiful. And, and you guys, again, this is romantic. It feels like a romantic notion. Uh, but it's more than just a romantic idea we're reading in. Question, is there anything in this Exodus story, you know, the Prince of Egypt story, that supports this marriage idea between God and the people? Is there an intentional picture in there? And I'm going to argue today, and I'm going to invite you into a huge yes. I believe it is. As we look carefully at what's going on in these stories of Scripture, we see fascinating signs <laughs> that God wants us to read this as the creation of a marriage covenant. God and his people willingly choosing to enter a binding commitment. So you wonder what it means to like join the church or like become part of the family of God. It's, it's, it's this, very much. And so when we grasp this today, that what we call following Jesus or being a Christian is really covenant life with our rescuer. When we realize this, that's when we begin to understand the power and beauty of what it means to be people who hear and respond to this rescuer. And that's where our life comes from. Because he wants to respond to us. He's a speaking God. He's a moving God. He moves toward us. We move toward him. This is not a static religion that we mentally agree with doctrines and then we're part of a club. Understand, huge difference. This, This is a dynamic covenant that we are living and moving and breathing in. And so, okay, here we go. In the famous Exodus story, this theme emerges. And I I think it emerges most prominently, maybe, from a really insignificant story. We don't often tell this story when we tell the story of Prince of Egypt. We we tell the 10 plagues. (laughs) Recently heard, I wasn't planning on saying this, but my wife and I went to see Jim Gaffigan and, and he makes fun of the Ten Plagues as like, like God's album, the Ten Tracks on his album. It's this funny little bit. Anyways, and we always think of the Ten Plagues as like the Israel story, and it's the climax. The Red Sea opens, and then they have the two tablets. Uh, but there's this seemingly insignificant story that's never told when we tell the story to our kids or put it in a cartoon. And it's this visit Moses gets from his father-in-law, uh, Jethro. I don't know if he even knew he had a father-in-law. Moses had a father-in-law named Jethro. And, and, and right after the Red Sea opens, the news starts spreading about Israel's unbeatable God. Israel's unbeatable rescuer is on the move. Israel should be feared because their God is, is pretty bad. Like, he's amazing. God, this God can part oceans. And so news travels fast in the Middle East. And, and Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, is way east, yeah, east, wherever you're looking, in Midian, and, 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 Moses, and Moses gets a visit from Jethro. And because and, Jethro travels all the way to Moses and Israel, they're wandering, and Jethro knows where they are, so he's like, I have to go visit my son-in-law and celebrate. I just want to celebrate his God. And so listen to Jethro's celebration. Uh, This is a key story that we don't often tell. 
Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, of Pharaoh, and who rescued, see this word, this theme, the word that pops up most is rescue, 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 and it's celebration. Verse 11, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then, look what Jethro does, pay attention. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. Okay, so rescue, 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 popping up through this story. You guys, this is all about saving. It's all about saving, and Jethro knows it, and he comes to throw a party, basically put on party as liturgy, in the words of Matt Persley. This is party as liturgy. And, and, and over and over, through the Bible, you guys, God saves, and then people eat. <laughs> this is what happens all through the scriptures. I immediately after Jethro rejoices about God's rescue, he puts on a feast. And the feast is worship. So I love the language in verse 12. It's hard to tell who's enjoying the meal more. Who's enjoying the burnt offering more, God or, or God's people? Look at verse 12. Then Jethro, Moses' follower, brings a burnt offering other sacrifices. Aaron came. All the elders of Israel came. Moses' father-in-law was there. And who else is there at the end? Even God is present. God is present at this meal, you guys. Um, so as, as the people gather in presence, their presence to God to celebrate his rescue, God floods them with his presence. It's this dynamic covenant relationship that's being born here. And it's this beautiful image of intimacy. You guys, in a sense, right there, that's one of the first glimpses of church. It's like proto-church we see in the Bible. God the rescuer has rescued ones drawing near to one another in bread and probably a cup. It's proto-church. And it's worth pointing out, this is before there were priests. There, this was before there was a temple. This was before there was even a tabernacle or a formal sacrificial institution. This is raw intimacy. God, God's people together celebrating rescue over a shared meal. It's almost as if this is what God has always wanted. In fact, when you read the whole Bible, you see this. Whenever God becomes present, dinner served. In Genesis 18, Abraham is visited as he journeys, as he's journeying across Canaan into the promised land or whatever. Uh, he's going where God told him to go. Do you remember one of the first moments God visits a human being is, is right then. The Lord, Genesis 18, Yahweh appears to Abraham as three men. Three, three, three persons visit Abraham. And Abraham's first response is to bow down. His immediate after response is to say, hey, hey, Sarah, honey, please kill the best calf we have and serve it up. And so from the earliest pages of Scripture, when humans realize they're in God's presence, they say so with the party, the party as liturgy. And this is the communion meal that we're going to have today. So, uh, and it's what you do in community groups every week. Eucharistic Thanksgiving meals all the time in God's honor because we're rescued. So uh, now here's where the story is brilliant. Here's where it gets 
this, so this is the stuff I nerd out at, and it just opens up the Bible for me, and, and I, I just love it. Look at verse 12 again. Tell me, who is missing from this party? Look at it again. There's Jethro, there's Aaron, there's elders of Israel, the presence of God. Even God is there. God's not missing. But who is missing? There, yeah, there's no women. That's good. That's true. It's about time we changed that. Just kidding. No, so, yes, specifically, which really important named character is not named? Moses. There's no Moses. It, it's almost like this verse goes out of its way to remove Moses. Why? It's like his absence is this obvious vacuum in the text. Moses isn't at this party in this text. And I think this is the Bible writer doing something very intentional. Why and what? You're supposed to ask, where have we seen this before? When you read the Bible, you have to say, now, this, this seems funny. Where, and then you ask, where have I seen this before? And there's actually two Jethro parties in Exodus. Jethro functions as this plot device for the story of Exodus to show how the story is framed around God and his people getting married. So Jethro's, there's, so you could call it the first Jethro story. So here's, here's the second Jethro party. Uh, but the first Jethro party is actually, you know, what, you know what it is? It's Exodus 2, and it's the story of Moses' literal wedding. It's amazing. Look, here's, here's the Exodus 2 Jethro story summed up. It's Moses' wedding story. Here it is. And here's just the bullet points. Jethro hears really good news. An Egyptian rescued his daughters from shepherds. Moses hears a story of rescue. Um, Jethro, rather. He hears a story of rescue. And so Jethro throws a feast to celebrate his daughter's salvation from abusers. And then Jethro gives, a, there's a giving in marriage that happens in that, in that party. Jethro gives his daughter to Moses. Moses receives her, and they enter a covenant. And the very next chapter, you know what happens after that first Jethro party? The next chapter, Moses is invited up the mountain to meet God at a burning bush. So see that in your mind. See that in your mind. And uh, d d does this look familiar now? Now, here it is in a parallel. Here's Jethro party number one next to Jethro party number two. You guys, this is intentional. This is the Bible's man alive. The Bible's amazing. So there it is, Moses' wedding story number one. Jethro hears about a rescue, throws a feast, gives in a marriage, and then there's a burning mountain. And then Jethro's story two, it's a wedding story also apparently because it's mirroring the first one. Jethro hears about a rescue, Jethro throws a feast, and, and, but, but, but Moses is gone. And you're supposed to ask why. And it says the presence of God fills that space. The groom is not Moses in this story. The, the greater groom is God. And God is present to his people because in the next chapter, it's not a burning bush on a mountain. It's a whole burning mountain that God's people are invited up to meet God at. You guys, this is, the Bible does this stuff. The Bible's amazing. So Moses' absence triggers us to say, well, who's the groom? And the groom is God himself. And the bride is his rescued ones, just like Moses married his rescued bride. You guys see this? So, and, and so the question then becomes, what now? How do we live into this 
marriage. What's God's people supposed to do? This sounds like a really great arrangement. And so that's what the rest of the Torah is about. That's what the rest of the first five books is all about. It's this creation of a covenant relationship between God and his rescued ones. So from, es- from Exodus 19 all the way through the first five books of the Bible, if you can name Exodus, there's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, first five books. All those books are building up to this covenant creation. And we witness not just the birth of Israel, not just the beginning of a nation, but the creation of a marriage that's messy. You guys, if you read the whole Pentateuch, I read it once in a week just to challenge myself, and I'm like, this is the messiest, most frustrating story that I've ever read. Uh, because God moves in, and we're like, yeah, but we're scared. No, we actually prefer worshiping goats. And then, and then God's like, well, because you worshiped a goat, now I have to introduce priests. And now because the priests disobeyed me, now I have to introduce a tabernacle. And, and God keeps moving in, keeps clarifying and pursuing this relationship. That's, that's the Pentateuch. That's the first five books. That's how God's family is, enters a marriage with him. Um, and, and, and it all kind of wraps around, there's even exchange of vows, In Exodus 19 and 24, God says, I'll be your God. And Israel's like, we'll be your people. And in Exodus 24, God's like, I will do all I've spoken for you. And they're like, and all you have spoken, we will do. They're like super pumped. And they don't do it. And God's like, I still will. And they're like, we promise we will. And God's like, all right, let's see. I still will even when you fail. And and the rest is history. Literal biblical history. And, and the end of the Torah, God has Moses give these five books to Israel. So it's like Moses is now the officiant at the wedding. Like when you ask a pastor to marry you, Moses stands in the middle and says, did you hear each other? And like, we have heard. And God's like, I've heard you. I'm responding to you. And, and so, so Moses says, here is the Torah. Here is the scriptures. Wrap them around your hearts like a ring. And, and Moses presents the Torah like rings. And, and, and that's when we get to our text we read at the beginning. Deuteronomy 11, here's the presenting of the rings. So if you faithfully obey the commands, I'm giving you this ring. If you faithfully wear it to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, then I'll send rain on your land. You'll be loved. You'll be loved. I'll send rain on your land both autumn and spring rains, you'll flourish so that you may gather your grain. New wine, just like Pete Hughes said, new what? Wine, flourishing presents, olive oil. I'll provide grass in the fields for your cattle. You'll eat and be satisfied. You'll be loved, but be careful. Verse 16, be careful or you'll be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Did you know the primary metaphor for sin in the Old Testament is adultery? When God speaks of his people rebelling against him, he speaks in terms of adultery most often. You guys, this is what we're, we're in this thing. We're in this thing with God and each other. And then to end the Torah, to end the first five books of the Bible, you know how the whole covenant creation ends? Moses sings a song, you know, the obligatory end of the wedding song, just like weddings. And then, and then the very last event of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. You know what the last event is? Moses dies. And, and once again, Moses is removed from the picture. This is intentional. 
On one level, it's sad. We're like, man, Moses didn't get to see the promised land. He died just before. But think about what's going on in the narrative. What happened the last time Moses was removed? God's presence flooded the place. At the end of the Torah, at the end of the the first five books of the Bible that set up the marriage of God and his people, you see Moses removed. And who becomes present? God. God loves filling Moses' vacuum. How do I know that God fills Moses' absence? How do we know that when Moses leaves, we're supposed to get pumped? When we hear about Moses leaving, we should get psyched at that moment. We're about to experience the presence of God. And so how do we know? Who who actually filled Moses' role? Do you know his name? Joshua. And and yes, this guy named Joshua or Yahshua. And so um, he's a man filled with the Spirit, it says. It describes him as a man filled with the Spirit and wisdom. So question, who else in the Bible was named Joshua? You're on to something there. That's really good. Most answers in church are Jesus. So just, you can just shout out Jesus. You'll be, you'll be right. Uh, so if you, didn't know, if you didn't know who else in the Bible was named Joshua, I'd give you three hints. He ended the requirements of Moses. There's a vacuum now, and he fills it. Jesus lived a perfectly spirit-filled life, died for sin, rose from the dead, and gave his Holy Spirit to all God's family so we can hear the Father's voice now. And he's like the most important person in history. His name's Jesus. Jesus fills the presence that Moses never could. When God stepped into the world as the man Jesus, God was saying, I want to include all humanity in this marriage now. It's not just about Moses and Israel anymore. Moses and Israel was always about me and you and us with the Trinity It's now about everyone of every identity from every nation and language, whoever calls on the name of Jesus, whoever believes that Jesus is the crucified, risen king of the kingdom. God offers you forgiveness and belonging in his family forever and a new identity that takes priority over any other identity you can claim. And that new identity is loved child of God. Everyone is invited to receive that through repentance, period. You guys, Moses' law could never do that. So after the death of Moses, Joshua comes, filled with the spirit of wisdom, ready to rescue everyone who calls on his name, and his name's Jesus. So this is the new covenant, this new covenant. The the massiveness of this can't be overstated, okay? Now, Now we live in this dynamic marriage. We're going to, this, you got, this is the only marriage that will never end, the one between God and his people. I like to re- remind both married people and unmarried people of this. It's very, very important that we do not elevate human marriage so that we lose sight of the beauty of the capital M marriage that all of us are supposed to be living into with our whole bodies. Um, yeah, so if you're, if, you're, if you're single right now, uh, then the clock is ticking because you won't be for long. And if you're, if you're married right now, then the clock is ticking because you won't be for long. Uh, 
and, and I think there's a lot there to unpack with our lives. How much do we ground our lives in the reality of our marriage covenant with God versus other covenants we can make? So, um, in this new covenant marriage, the Creator God speaks, creation responds. And how do we respond? We, we obey. To hear is to obey. And when we obey, we flourish. We receive his love. So, so you guys, now the wedding ring is no longer just Moses' law. We wear a wedding ring, and it's God's own spirit wrapped around our hearts. He, he is the wedding ring. He becomes the governor of our hearts, giving us new desires every day that come from his heart. So, so that's the new covenant, the spirit in in us. So many Old Testament prophets longed for this to come. I'm just going to show you one, Jeremiah 31. He said this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and, and with the people of Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. It won't be like, you know, the mountain when I took them by the hand and Jethro parties. It won't be like Jethro parties uh, it, it, because they, they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, they they broke my covenant, declares the Lord. So this is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel. Are you ready for it? After that time, here it is. I'll put my laws, I'll put my laws in their minds. They won't have to look to tablets of stone anymore. I'll put my laws in their minds, write, on their, write it on their hearts. I'll be their God, they'll be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me as one community. They'll share my spirit. They'll all have the mind of Christ. We no longer need a Moses as a father because they'll all know me from the least to the greatest. For here's, you guys, here's how you get this new covenant. You receive forgiveness for your wickedness and, rem and he remembers your sins no more. All of that is true for those who say, God, my heart is wicked. My heart is deceitful. I my culture tells me to follow my heart. I can't even do that all the time. And so, so I want to follow you, and you tell me when my heart is out of line. When you say that to Jesus as part of the community through the waters of baptism, everything about the new covenant becomes true about you. So I want to ask you if you have made that confession. Have you said to God with his people, I need forgiveness of sins? I can't always follow my heart. My heart is like a compass without a magnet. Like north is, it might be, it might point north sometimes, but I don't even know when it's right. So I need you, Lord, through your community, through the scriptures, through the spirit. I'm wicked. I'm wicked. I'm, I'm out of line. I'm, I'm, I'm twisted. And, and it doesn't mean I'm all bad. It doesn't mean I'm horrible and like I'm not worth loving. You actually are so worth loving that God offers you forgiveness of your wickedness. Once you admit this in public, and I, I do mean joining the community is that public confession through baptism, the new covenant becomes true about you. You enter the marriage, the only marriage that lasts, the only one that lasts. How does that sound? Some of you are nodding in agreement. That's, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Some, of you, some of you were verbal. That's good. Uh, so God, no, no longer just Torah, but now in the heart as well. So Park Hill Church, this is now true of you. God's people, for all who call on the mighty name of Jesus for rescue, repent of sin, 
forgiveness, belonging, power to hear and obey the voice of God comes to you. And so, as we come to kind of the end of this teaching, we come to the second reading that Nate Shoup read uh, at the beginning. And it's Jesus. On the night before he died, Jesus described what this covenant marriage now is going to be like. And you guys know the scene. It's, surprise, surprise, a meal. And remember, whenever God's presence shows up, there's a meal. But at this meal, there's no Moses in the room. There's no old Joshua, because the true and better Joshua is right at the head of the table. God himself is present. And this is, this is party as liturgy. This is party as liturgy. So it's the last supper of Jesus, the communion meal. We're about to eat it. And at that meal, the night before he's crucified, Jesus tells his disciples what it's going to look like. Here it goes. Verse John 14. I mean, sorry, John 14, starting with verse 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. It's, it's really the same. Obedience is still at the center. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Keep his law. But not because his law is written on a stone. It's way closer than that now. His presence is in you now. If you love him, keep my commands, he says. And I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Who? The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives in you and will be in you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you'll realize that I'm in my Father, and you're in me, and I'm in you. That's very intimate language right there. It's like, I don't know when God ends and I begin, or my desires start. Or It's like, there's so much intimacy that there's, a, there's an indistinguishable aspect to this relationship now. I really want to please God. Is that me? Is that the spirit in me? Yes. That's true about you now. That wasn't true about you before. Now it's true about you because you trust in Jesus. So verse 21 and 23, look. Whoever has my commands, sorry, the last, yeah, yeah, 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. You see that? Whoever obeys Jesus is the one who loves Jesus. So the obvious question is, how are you obeying Jesus? That's how you're loving Jesus. We throw around love God, love people all the time. This is what it means to do that. Not just, not just agree that God is good, or agree that he exists, or agree that eschatology is true and theology is right. You guys, every demon does those things. Demons have really good theology. Do they love God? Literally, hell no, you know. They, they don't love God. That just came to me now. It's not in my notes. 
So, the diff, like you, you can have all, you, this is the difference, you guys. And what does loving him look like? Following his commands. It's not being part of a church. It's, in other words, of attending church. That's not, it's not attending basics. It's not doing the spiritual disciplines just by yourself. It's, it's a holistic life following and obeying the voice of God in your life, holistically. All that Jesus commands. And then verse 23, this is wild. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them. Wait a minute. So what we do actually affects our reception of God's love? According to Jesus, absolutely. You guys, God is, not, again, not a static, unmoved lover, and he just loves. No, he responds to obedience with blessing. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. So this Last Supper moment gets to the heart of the whole Hearing God series the heart of what it means to be the family of the living God. To hear his voice is to respond with obedience. You could say God's love language is obedience. And through our spirit-led obedience, the creator's loved by us. And we are loved by him when we experience the fruit of obeying. Even when it doesn't make sense to obey him. That's a key. That's the follow your heart, not always working for us thing. So we respond to his voice. We keep repenting. We keep turning over the stones in our hearts. and keep, Why? Not to shame ourselves, not to live in some kind of... Our culture would want us to think an ongoing life of repentance is a life of shame. They're different things. It's an ongoing life of repentance is opening ourselves to the God who's trustworthy because there might be something I don't see that's keeping me from being loved, experiencing the love he has for me. Again, his love is unstoppable for us. Nothing can separate us from his love. But Jesus also says, whoever obeys me will be loved by me. They're both true. And keep inviting the Spirit to search our hearts. And when we do this as a community around the table, God is present. God's present to us. A rescuer loved by his rescued ones. So to hear him, last slide, is to obey him, is to love him, is to be loved by him. It's all one thing. This is the goal of human flourishing. This is the whole, this is the reason we exist. And it's actually, I, I believe, the, the life every human longs for. And I'm not sure why. But I, at this part in the sermon prep, I thought, I couldn't help but think of that Elizabeth Gilbert memoir, Eat, Pray, Love. I couldn't help but think of that. I, I never saw the movie, I admit, I never read the book. But what I gathered online this week, the title kind of sums it up, Eat, Pray, Love. I mean, honestly, I read summaries of the book. I just, I thought of it this week because I, I was interested. And so Eat, Pray, Love... That sort of that sort of propped up as phases of a journey in her, in her. If like if I didn't tell you I didn't read it, then I'd be a total poser. So I'm just telling you I didn't read it. So, so but she props up eat and pray and love as a year long journey of self discovery. So for three months or four months, she eats her way through Italy, which sounds awesome, and then she prays her way through India, which I don't know, and then she finds cultures. 
She finds culture's definition of love in a marriage to this Brazilian business guy and they end up divorcing. And so it's like, yeah, it's yeah, not about the destination. It's about the journey. Am I right? Kind of thing. <laughs> Eat, pray, love. And so just reading uh, uh, blink, blinkish summaries of this book, I started to, I, I actually tried to envision myself doing this. I couldn't help but thinking, A, that would stress me out. <laughs> a, 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 I have one year to experience everything I'm supposed to in order to discover myself. And, and then I, and this, my second thought is, man alive, I'm so glad the Bible's picture of flourishing is way less subjective and transient and infinitely more concrete. <laughs> like it's weighty concrete, that more than a year of experiencing things. Um, because you guys, here's the point. You don't have to read any memoirs to know this. Life in the spirit is not a fleeting connection, but a flourishing commitment. Difference between fleeting connection and flourishing commitment. Do we like connection? I, I love connection. Connection is great, but commitment is greater. Everyone needs connection, but everyone needs commitment more. Connected people come and go. Committed people stay. As a pastor here, I love our connected people. I love people that connect to Park Hill. We have a connect desk. We do not have a commit desk. Connection and commitment. Maybe the desk should be renamed the commit desk or something. But, but, but we have connect because it feels better to us, doesn't it? We love connection. Uh, and, and I love the people that feel connected to Park Hill. I'm, I'm thrilled when people find each other, experience belonging, moments of connection. And I'm, I'm personally dedicated to making this Sunday experience like meaningful, not hypey at all, and, and raw. And a, fr a phrase we use behind the scenes is elegant simplicity. We go for that and everything we try to do. And, and so I love the connection that that creates. But a huge part of this experience is to make sure you're moving from connection to commitment. That's like right in the middle of all this, that you're finding a family and discovering a purpose greater than your own ambition and, and you actually are making a plan to give back to the family. And so, uh, you know, I've said it in the past, one way to call you to commit versus connect is to say, hey, if you're, however long you plan to be in San Diego or at Park Hill, uh, maybe you're like, I'm here for a two-year nursing degree. Well, then maybe... I suggest putting your discipleship as a priority over your vocation always. And so, like, maybe you planned on two years for a nursing degree. Maybe it's four years for the mission of God. Maybe consider swapping out your plan uh, for the priority of commitment over connection. So whatever it is, maybe, maybe you're here for a four-year bachelor's degree. I've actually heard people say, I was here for a four-year bachelor's degree, and you made that call to double my time here based on commitment to the mission rather than connection to a vocation. And, and I'm, I'm here for eight now. I've actually heard people do that, lots of people. Uh, it's shocking, I'm like, man. And it sobers me, like I have a lot of like, power, like, power with my words up here. That's crazy, but I actually believe in this. I actually believe in commitment. Connection is for commitment. If it's just for an experience that's fleeting, then it's a disservice. So, uh, because God is not just connected to you. He's committed to you. Life in the Spirit is not about, it means life in the Spirit is not about grasping for a year of experience, but growing in confidence. It's not about grasping for an experience, it's about growing in confidence that you belong here. 
What would, you, what would your life look like if you were twice as confident you belonged here? That's actually what God wants you to live into. And you see proof that you belong because people invite you deeper. And you're doing the inviting of others. And we're a family that lives with a shared commitment, just like God's committed to us, like a marriage. We live with a shared commitment to hear and respond to God's voice in costly obedience. And as we do that, our God is loved and we flourish. So, so, so yeah, thankfully, <laughs> life in the Spirit is way more integrated than three phases on a year-long vacation, eating, praying, loving. Life in the Spirit is all one thing. Hearing is obeying, is loving and being loved by God and others as his rescued ones. It's all of that, all at once. To use Jesus' word, this is the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. So here's the call to respond as uh, Luis and Erica, Priscilla and uh, Rebecca come up. They're going to lead us. Uh, the call to respond is very, very simple. It's, it's those three things, hear, obey, and love. So hear. Some of you here need to hear God again. You need to hear God speak. Like, like last week, we prayed for people who experienced dryness. Maybe this week, you're ready to come forward and receive prayer for that. Um, you need to hear God speaking again. And so spend time seeking Him. We're going to invite people to come up to pray for you. And if, if, if you want to hear God speak, come, come forward. Like walk forward right when the song starts, and people will be here to pray for you. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this call is for you. Hear him. <laughs> like hear his voice and respond in trust. So hear and then obey. Some of you are Jesus followers. You're Christians. And, and you may be called to consecrate yourself to obey what God's already said to you. He's already spoken. You know what he requires. And you're holding back obedience. The invite, the invite for you is to obey. Another word, again, is repent, to, to rearrange your life around obedience. And again, come forward for prayer. We'd love to pray for you. Um, maybe for you that means coming to be joining a community group, actually getting vulnerable with a community. And that's why we have basics today at 3 p.m., to tell you what it means to commit to a community group in this church. And then finally, love. So hear, obey, and then and love. Some of you just need to be reminded how much God loves you. And, and Romans 5 says that the Father pours his love into your life through the Spirit. And so we'd love to pray that the Spirit fills you, that you know you are loved. Like, it is just written in your heart more deeply than words on a stone tablet. Receive the Holy Spirit. And of course, whenever God shows up, there's always a meal. So at the end of this time, we're gonna, we're gonna eat and drink. But, but can we do that? Can we all stand and be free, be free to walk forward? Hear, obey, and receive love. All three. I wanna hear God. I wanna obey God. I want to experience his love. Let us pray for you. Holy Spirit, come.